13 of the book of Acts today. Uh, it's a fairly long chapter, so I thought we should just jump straight into it. Acts chapter 16, and since it's uh, so large, let's read the whole thing together. That way uh, we can get the entire context all in one shot, and then we'll go back through in a few sections. It's Acts chapter 16. Paul also came to Derby and Lystra. A disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on uh, their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up from uh, Mysiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So by passing Messiah, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the, in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that, there was hope, uh, that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, 
so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer, jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that the Romans, they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you again this morning. I'd ask that you would help us... Uh, see your sovereign hand in history. I'd ask you to help us see what you're teaching us this morning. Help me as I try to feebly communicate the word, get myself out of the way, and uh, speak through me this morning. I'd ask that you would uh, be with those here who are hurting and dealing with things that uh, may, perhaps they've not discussed yet, but uh, that you would uh, soothe their souls, that you would show us afresh the love that you have for us, the love you've shown through your Son, and let that shine through this passage this morning. I pray that in your Son's name. Amen. Well, our chapter this morning follows the events of the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15, where the apostles and the elders work through some of the challenges of the Gentiles entering into this church that had been uh, prior, mostly Jewish. And then right at the end, Paul and Barnabas are going to head out on their second missionary journey, and uh, Barnabas wants to bring along John Mark, and that doesn't sit well with Paul, and there's such a sharp disagreement emotionally that uh, they decide to split up and go different ways. And uh, that John Mark then is later called by Paul to be useful in the ministry to him, and later then goes on to write uh, what we call the Gospel of Mark today. And then the narrative of Luke here in the book of Acts then follows Paul. We don't see Barnabas again. And Paul takes Silas and begins to head north and to evangelize the Gentile nations. And, and since we're covering such a large section today, I thought it would be uh, good and advantageous for us to uh, cover as much as the 
a context that we can as we move somewhat quickly so we're not here until two because the teenagers have a Super Bowl party tonight and we got to get out of here as fast as we can. So in our first section, Paul and Silas, they begin to head north once again on what's called the uh, second missionary journey. They head towards Greece. Once they arrive in Lystra, they were introduced to a young man named Timothy, and he was perhaps 17 or 18 years old. And this is the same Timothy that is mentioned in about eight of Paul's apostles, and Paul writes two uh, what we call pastoral epistles to him, first and second Timothy. And this right here is where we meet this young man. And the providence of God here at play with Timothy is that Timothy is very much like Paul. Whereas Paul is a full-blooded Jewish man who was born a Roman citizen, Timothy's father is a Greek and his mother is Jewish and, and himself a Roman citizen. And you could see why God would use such a man to minister with Paul. He was so well-spoken, his Christian faith was so well-spoken of, at his young age, that it's written that in Iconium, 20 miles to the north, a full day's travel for these people, Timothy's faith is well known even there. So Paul takes Timothy, he circumcises him in preparation for the continuation of the missionary journey. And since he would not have had this procedure done due to his father being Greek, so Timothy joins Paul, Silas, and they continue on their travels apparently visiting churches that he had already planted when he was with Barnabas that we saw over the last few chapters, telling them of what the Jerusalem council had decided as far as circumcision and bringing the Gentiles into the church. And he then takes all of that and he takes it back to the churches, encouraging them in their Christian doctrine and church life, which Luke uh, writes that this resulted in the strengthening of their faith and the gospel moving in their city. And Luke records in verses in 6 through 10 that the Holy Spirit begins to keep them from moving into Asia. And if you're looking at a map in the back of your Bibles, this isn't the Asia that we currently think of, like you would have gone from Israel and turned straight right and gone towards China. This was in a region title right on the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And so if you could envision him leaving Israel, rounding the corner, he could have just headed straight west to where the book of uh, the city of Ephesians, uh, Ephesus is, where the book of Ephesians was written to. And he, he feels the Holy Spirit blocking him from going straight west there, and he ends up taking somewhat of a northwest pattern towards Philippi. This is where we end the book of chapter 16 with Paul there. So on his way northwest, Paul now passes further than he did. He's now a new territory on a second journey. We follow him through the regions of Phrygia and Mycenae to Troas. And this is where Paul receives a vision similar to what Peter received with the vision of food. He sees a vision of a man calling him to Macedonia, a region with many cities, two of which uh, we should be familiar with, uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. Paul explains this to his travel companions, Timothy and Silas, and they begin to head further north around the Mediterranean Sea to uh, further north there. And if you notice, this is the first time that Luke begins to use the word we. It's right in this region that the group of three men picks up Luke, and Luke begins to travel with them. So what do these 10 verses show us today? What I thought was interesting is this event 
where Paul takes Timothy and he circumcises him. And it's not recorded that Timothy refuses at all. Well, why is that interesting? Because just one chapter ago, one week ago for us, we see the Jerusalem council say, well, that's completely unnecessary now. And Paul does it. It was just decided there's no requirement for these men of the Gentiles to come underneath the, the Jewish law. And what I thought Pastor Tom so eloquently said last week, to put the Gentiles underneath the law that they themselves cannot keep either. And it's intriguing to me that Timothy goes through the, uh, with this. It's clear he's strong in the faith. It's already been recorded, and he's willing to do what it takes to reach these communities with the gospel. And he does exactly what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Paul and Timothy did what it took to not be a stumbling block in their evangelism. They took themselves out of the way so that the only offense would be the gospel in and of itself. Notice that Timothy here is willing to go with a procedure that no man is running to with joy and excitement so that the ministry of the gospel would move forward in the life of the Jews that he encounters. Paul and Timothy and Luke are all utterly obsessed with the mission of the gospel, with the beauty of the gospel, with the blessing of the gospel in the lives of sinners. And they're doing whatever it takes so that they will not be hindered by anything that they're doing. No offense should be made by anything about them themselves. It is the gospel alone that should be offended by or saved by. Either the gospel will expose their sins to them and will make them spiritually run for the hills, or it will soften their heart and they will see Jesus for who he truly is. So I'd ask Springbrook, do do we do this in our lives? Do we, uh, are, do we get to the place where we're uh, obsessed with the gospel? And I know that'll work differently in all of our lives and what, where we're working and all of that, but what we see Paul and Timothy doing here is becoming all things to all people. Albert Moeller, a current president of one of uh, the seminaries, in America says, while circumcision made Timothy more of a Jew, it did not make him any more of a Christian. It did, however, demonstrate his faithfulness as a Christian in undergoing circumcision in order to remove that impediment to his preaching and ministry among the Jews. He was willing to endure the procedure for the sake of the gospel. And so I ask you, as you self-reflect what is that line that you're unwilling to cross for the gospel? And I would encourage you to take that to the Lord and ask him to help you with that. 
How can we imitate and follow the apostle here in doing what we can to make sure that we are not the offensive ones in our ministries, in our lives, so that the gospel may shine? Are we doing what we can to become everything to everyone in order, as Paul writes, to do it for the sake of the gospel so that we may share with them in its blessing? As I was thinking about that, uh, I used to wear this like gray cabbie hat. I don't know. That means it, there's a bunch of different words. And it's on Miranda's Facebook of our wedding. I wore it at our wedding too because she liked it. And so it just became my thing, my signature. And I, when we moved down uh, to my first seminary in North Carolina, I wore that thing everywhere, even though it was 120 degrees all the time. And uh, I had to do an internship. So I went to this little Baptist church. They were looking for an intern. And I wore that cabbie hat in the worship service. If you don't know much about the South, they don't like that. And uh, I remember at least three times, it may have been different men, uh, as I looked around the room because I get easily distracted and I look around and they are just glaring at me. Like they are mad that I have this cabbie hat on in the worship service. And funny enough, I didn't get that job. And uh, even when I was like, you know, is there anything I could do, you know, because you're supposed to ask that when you're told no. What could I do to change? He goes, oh, uh, there wasn't anything, but just know if you still come here, you, won't, you still won't be considered. I'm like, wow. So I went to my boss, and I was like, could you believe this all over a hat? They would, I think they, they would do this. And he said, well, why don't you just not wear it? Because I was 25, and I was right about everything. Uh, I was like, no, they should just get over it. Just get over the hat, and they should be worshiping. And I think that this was a case of, Two things being right at the same time. Though Timothy was willing to go through this procedure, and I was unwilling to even remove my hat in the worship service of the king of the universe, so I wouldn't offend other people. Just silliness. Are we, in our Christian lives, in our own personal ministries of the gospel, wherever we work and we live or we recreate, are we willing to become like those around us so that we can get out of the way and not be offensive in some way to them. So we can preach the gospel with effectiveness so that people can see the gospel for what it is and get ourselves out of the way so we're not offending them. Are we willing to be like Timothy here in this passage and evangelize with our lives and our mouths so that people may see the gospel and come to faith? That's what I think the call from these verses are. So our second section, verses 11 through 24, let's reread those together quickly, just so we're on the same page. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days, and the Sabbath day... We went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. 
And we were going to the place of prayer where we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain for fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined them in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Uh, Would you excuse me one sec? So in this passage, we follow our four men to Philippi, the city of the letter that the Philippians is written to. And on the Sabbath day, Paul does what he does by looking for the synagogue where they're going to worship. Though now we're securely, the further northwest that we move on this journey, we're securely out of where the heavy Jewish populations would be. It said, it was written that this city would probably be filled with Italian men and their family, uh, retired from the military, sent down here to uh, cohabitate in this city. So Albert Moeller, I mentioned before when writing about this, wrote that the year before Paul arrived in Philippi, the emperor had just expelled the Jews from Rome and made their worship illegal. That's what could be happening here in Philippi is they're looking around looking for a synagogue with such a high Roman population. You needed 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue, and this is probably why there are not enough of them to put one in there, if they were allowed to do it in the first place, as the Jewish population is pushed further and further away from Italy. And if they were not allowed to worship inside the city, what the Jews would do is go outside and look for the closest running water so that they could go ceremonially clean themselves before entering into worship and prayer. So Paul most likely arrived in Philippi. Notice there's no uh, uh, synagogue and uh, where he knew right when he walked out of the city where they would go. And he was right. He was correct, and he came upon these Jewish women who had gathered for prayer on the Sabbath. And one of these women, a Greek, who was worshiping the Lord with the Jewish women, was Lydia. (coughs) Lydia was, by the context here, a wealthy woman. She owned a home. She was a seller of purple goods. It's the expensive color in their culture. uh, This would be worn by royalty and all of those involved in government. This was the pinnacle of colors to use if you are selling clothing. Lydia then hears the gospel preached. The Lord opens her eyes and heart so she can understand the gospel. She's then baptized. Her entire household believes and is baptized. And then she presses upon the group, one including Paul, who does, usually does the pressing, to stay at her house. And here we see the conception of the church in Philippi. While staying there... 
And apparently returning back and forth to this place of prayer, the group begins to be followed by a slave woman who's possessed by an evil spirit. And this demon is fortune-telling in the uh, city. And just as we see in the Gospels, repeated, uh, where demons repeatedly, accurately call Jesus the Son of God, this demon reportedly for many days chases after them, crying out that these men are servants of that Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And what we see is Paul get greatly annoyed at this woman. And it could just be he was sick and tired of hearing it for multiple days in a row with this woman chasing around them. Possibly that. But her message would be quite dangerous back in, uh, in this time where it'd be safe in Israel. It's not where it's a high Roman population of course, the Jews would know exactly who the Most High God is. The title for the one and only God. Though this is not the case in the pluralistic society of Rome and its main regions and cities like Philippi, the Most High God to the Romans was Zeus. And if not Zeus, the emperor himself. And so now we could easily see, I think, why Paul would be annoyed by a woman who would be mixing up who they are preaching about and who the, Paul and the three are representing, and that calling out needed to stop. And what's dangerous about this action by Paul, though he'd be applauded by preaching for Zeus, he would be punished and arrested if he was a traveling preacher as a Jew. It was absolutely outlawed for Jews to be proselytizing in the Roman cities, and, he would, and if this became true and known, they would be thrown into prison. And we see this trouble immediately find Paul and Silas when he calls this woman out. The owners of the slave girl are maddened by their loss of probably great income. They seize Paul and Silas and they bring them before the rulers of Philippi. And just as it is likely that the Jews could not have a synagogue in the city, it is true that they are now thrown into prison for doing this. Probably just Timothy and Luke getting off because they were Greek or half-Greek and were not as obvious as Jewish men. So Paul and Silas are brought before the local magistrates, and because of the mob forming, it appears that the magistrates want to keep the riot from building. So they grab Paul and Silas, they strip them, they beat them <laughs> with rods before they throw them into the inner prison. Not only do, that, do they do that, they put them in the stocks hold them by the ankles and the wrists and pieces of wood. <coughs> the only reason that the magistrates would do this is that they planned on capital punishment and ending their lives the next day. But a miracle happens in the next passage. Let's read that, 25 through 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to you to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come take themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So close to 12 a.m., after they were arrested, stripped, beaten, Paul and Silas are then put in the inner chamber of the prison, locked by the ankles and wrists and stocks. They don't grumble. They don't cry out because they're innocent. They don't even cry out and claim that they're Roman citizens, which they are, they're mere hours away from probably being executed, which is why the magistrates kept them overnight. And Paul and Silas would have known that's why they were keeping them. And what do we find them doing? Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were worshiping their God in prison. Not only were they doing this, they were doing it so loud that the inner from the inner chambers of the prison that the other prisoners, and I would argue the prison guard, could hear what they were singing about and praying about before he fell asleep. And then the miracle happened. A great earthquake happens. And earthquakes are common in this area at this time. What's not common is the way that the foundations of the prison is, are sh uh, shaken to where every single door just pops open and all the shackles pop off, and the front door of the prison swings open, and the jailer just magically, in air quotes, stays asleep. And after he wakes up, the jailer, after seeing everyone is gone, he knew he would have been executed for the escape of these prisoners, went off to save everyone the trouble and the shame, and his family trouble and shame, to off himself. And it was at this moment we see God and what he was doing through all of this. The prayers and the songs were so moving in this prison that even at the opportunity of all the doors being swung open, shackles falling off in the prison, and the guard falling asleep at the front door, they could have just bolted and been free. But 100% of the prisoners actually turned around and they went further in to the inner chambers of the prison to hear more of who this Jesus was that they were singing about. So let's reread what happens in uh, verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. That is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is to take three people and their families, if they had them, and save them from the punishment for their sins and the rejection of God from every walk of life. One woman was rich and well off. One woman was a slave and possessed. And as we see in the habit of and uh, tradition of the gospels, those who are saved from demon possession come to Christ immediately. And the one jailer who was then somewhere in between these two parties, all rescued by the power of the gospel. And for those of you who are here and you're asking, what must I do to be saved? This is it. This is all it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We don't do the whole accept Jesus into your heart thing here. We don't do the, well, do this, this, and this thing and check off all the checklists. And uh, we sure hope that you and your family pray enough. And one day after you die, maybe then you'll go to heaven. We don't do that thing here. What we do here is we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that is enough to save sinners from their sins. But no, if in your heart you are just living in this life, just hoping you're good enough or better than the other person close by, that you'll just happen to make it in, that is not going to do it. What you must do is believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he's the king of your life, and you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, and he will give you all of Christ's righteousness, and he will take all of your sin upon him and leave it there. You will begin to be healed from your sin and shame and embarrassment that sin brings, and you will be given the final and true hope of Jesus Christ for all eternity. That's what we see in this chapter repeatedly. We see the unfolding and the invading gospel entering into unreached places. We're seeing hearts in Philippi changed and saved from all walks of life. And Jesus is still doing that today through the gospel. After the jailer is saved through faith, Paul and Silas and the jailer, they go to his house where it's whole household is saved by the gospel. And the jailer's newfound faith leads him to wash their wounds and he's baptized. Our chapter wraps up by Paul and Silas announcing their Roman citizenship to the magistrates. And the way the magistrates beat Paul and Silas was completely illegal to do to Roman citizens. Roman citizens were protected from that kind of treatment. They receive that apology. They ask them to leave silently, most likely because if the magistrates, uh, if the news of what they did reached Rome, they themselves would be probably given that punishment. So they said, oh, we're super sorry, like the oldest does to the younger child, like, shh, shh, don't tell mom because then she's coming after us. It's absolutely what is happening here. Commentators suggest that Paul and Silas may have agreed to leave quietly in hopes that this would make a point for the Christians that they're leaving behind to the magistrates, that they them, themselves wouldn't receive the same punishment that they received by these guys and maybe would soften the blow as these Philippians would go about preaching the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But one final thing that I thought would be worth mentioning and taking another look at is 
how Paul and Silas responded in the prison. The job of the jailer wasn't to make sure that they were comfy and relaxed on their last night of life. It was to make sure that they absolutely did not get away. I found myself this week asking, like, how would I respond in this situation? And I'd probably be spinning out and fretting and afraid because of what I'm leaving behind and what's going to happen to my children and my wife. I should have said wife first, I suppose, but I believe that they were able to pray with one another and to sing with one another because their, their hearts were content in the Lord. Their hearts were completely content with where they are because they are secure in where they are going. There was a Puritan pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, who lived in the 1600s. And this man lived in exile from his home and city because you weren't allowed to be a non-Church of England pastor in this time. So they kicked him out and they had to live a certain amount of miles away from their home. And uh, there was no internet or social media or video calling. And so they weren't able to continue uh, pastoring the people that they used to be. And he wrote this book uh, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He said, I offer the following description. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delight, delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Not only must the tongue hold its peace, the soul must be silent. Paul and Silas were content in what the Lord was doing in their lives. They both lived their lives trusting the Lord that he is God and that he will care for them exactly as he needs to. Christian contentment is the realization of their true hope is actually in Christ no matter what happens. It's not ourselves or our comfort or our retirement account. It's not our kids. It's only Jesus and his work in our lives. I think it's worth discussing because there's a lot going on in our community, in our county, in our country. We're about to enter into another presidential election, and as happens every four years, America completely melts down into chaos. We're, that's coming this year. Though what should happen in the Christian heart? There's another Burrow quote that I, I thought was helpful. A gracious heart is contented by the melting of his will or their will and the desires into God's will and desires. By this means, they get contentment. The mystery consists not in bringing anything from outside to make my condition more comfortable, but in purging out something that is within and I'm trying to make this logical argument from greater to lesser. If Jesus can help Paul and Silas, Paul being an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, while being held by wrists and ankles by pieces of wood, can Jesus help you be content with the things that you are also wrestling today? And the answer is absolutely yes, he can. Though what might, may be signs of a discontented heart a heart that's not in a place that is completely trusting in Christ in our lives right now, and we'll all have something like this. Could it be an anxious heart? 
What happens when your life is not exactly how you want it to be? What happens in your soul when something terrible happens? What does your soul do when the difficulties of your life begin to pile up and everything begins to crash down around you? When your soul moves at a thousand miles an hour and zero miles per hour all at the same time, do you begin to fret because your life is too difficult to bear? Could this be evidence that your heart is not content in the Lord as your only hope? Could, could a sign of discontentment be depression? This is where my soul goes. I may as well just give up because nothing I do is right. No one cares anyways. So just slink in that bed, hope to die soon, and then all the problems will be over. Is the discontentment and lack of peace in the Lord leading us into despair and darkness and gloom and discouragement? when the perfect Lord Jesus welcomes us into his arms because he has endured all things that humans could possibly go through first? Are we missing that he holds you through all your troubles? I think the greatest sign of the discontented heart is grumbling. What happens in your soul that probably only you and maybe your spouse knows that when something doesn't go your way? What happens in your heart and what comes out of your mouth when you come into a situation, maybe at work, maybe here at church, at home, that isn't the way that you would do it? Do you find yourself constantly critical of everything all the time in all situations? What is your uncontrolled knee-jerk reaction? Is it criticism and grumbling or is it thankfulness for what Jesus has done in your life and where he, con uh, where he has you today? I only say this as a call for self-reflection and a look in the mirror because I know this life's not an easy one. There's terrible things for around, around us every corner. It's coming for us every day. But are you content as Paul and Silas are in this prison awaiting their death? The good news is that our only hope in life for joy and peace and comfort for being content is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus that is our only hope. True hope and true contentment is only found in Jesus. Regardless of what will happen to us, Jesus will keep you. Jesus will protect you. You will one day, no matter what, no matter what makes you cry, no matter what makes you pound your fist on the table, you will live in the perfect eternity with Jesus and the saints one day. So let me close. I wanted to read... John chapter 6, 37 through 40, as, as almost a medicine for your contentment. 6, 37, this is Jesus speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for uh, this chapter and the work it's done in my life this week. And I ask you would help us with many things. Remember Timothy and what he was willing to go through 
for the sake of your gospel moving forward to get himself out of the way so that nothing would be offensive except your word to save sinners. I'm struck by the way that you move Paul and Silas to pray, to come and bow before you and seek you in their difficulties with one another, the same thing that we can do here at any time or the times that we pray on Sundays and Wednesday mornings and Saturday mornings. The way that their hearts are clearly content with whatever comes their way in the face of uh, death in what would be probably eight hours, they were content in you as as their only hope. And I'd ask for your help for us today, for me this week, that we would be content in you. Jesus, help us in that. Lord, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for this church. And I I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the time.